Welcome to Stories of Hope. I'm Christine Hotchkiss. Each week I bring you stories of inspiration, education, and stories of hope that will change you for sure. Before we get started, I want to say thank you to my studio sponsor, The Motivated Mind Group, your local creative agency. Today my guest is Matt Odie. He is a five-year stage four testicular cancer survivor and he's gonna tell us all about his journey. He's also a motivated speaker, and I will get more information as to where you can find him. Please help me welcome my guest today, Matt Odie. Hey, Matt. Hello. How you doing? It's good. I'm Finally good to connect again, Christine, so thank you. Yeah, we, we were just talking about this a few minutes ago that we actually connected a couple of years ago, right at, uh, probably around the pandemic time when we were all sitting in front of our computers and had nothing else to do but try to connect with yeah. new people, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And you were one of them, and it was a referral that I uh, am definitely glad that I got to. So stage four testicular cancer survivor and a motivated speaker. So let's start from the very beginning. Um, yeah. I, obviously, I don't know anything about this particular cancer. So tell me, how, where were you, and how did you get diagnosed? Yeah, great question. So we'll go all the way back to 2016. So. Um, I actually love starting my journey with how I met my now wife, which is actually important in the whole uh, journey and story behind this. But I met her on St. Patrick's Day of 2016. And um, at the time, I'm a well, I was a wellness instructor, a personal trainer. Um, like basically health was like really my lifestyle. It was everything that I wanted to help people with. And, um, you know, as I met Lauren that night, um, you know, we started dating a, a few months later and, um, you know, as the summer progressed, um, you know, we were doing activities such as hiking, kayaking, you name it. And all of a sudden I started to get these minor back pains and at 24 years old, by the way, I was 24, I'm 30 years old now. And, um, mm -hmm. I just was like, I'll shrug it off. I'll be fine. You know, there's nothing to worry about. You know, when you're young and you're, you know, you're a healthy individual, the last thing you're ever going to think about is cancer, anything in that realm. So I just kept shrugging it off and kept letting it, you know, kind of be in the back burner. And all of a sudden the back pain and other aches and pains got worse and worse. And as stubborn as I was, I wouldn't go to a doctor. And all of a sudden, a few months later, I got to the point where I could barely walk, but what actually got me to go to the hospital was I ended up waking up and puking up blood one night. Oh. I got rushed into the I got rushed to the emergency room. They did a blood test on me. They found out that I had lost two thirds of the blood circulating in my body, and they had no idea what was causing it. So I immediately got rushed into an emergency surgery. They gave me six bags of blood, and the next morning I wake up and I think I'm ready to go home. I, you know, I'm feeling better and you know, I'm just like, I'm just with my parents, but I saw that my parents were kind of distraught. And then all of a sudden my doctor walks into the recovery room and he has this blank stare in his eyes and he walks over to me, sits down, he grabs my hand and he goes, Matt, we have found an 11 centimeter tumor in your small intestine. We know it is cancerous. We don't know what type yet, and we have to rush you to the main campus of the Cleveland Clinic immediately. So I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I was at a local hospital at the time. And within that day, they had to find a room, get me in an ambulance, and rush me over to the clinic where they could do testing to figure out what type of cancer I had because it was spreading so quickly. Wow. Wow. And you're only 24 years young where we think we're invincible at that age, right? Mm -hmm. And. Before I even go any further, I want to say thank you to anyone such as myself. I'm a blood, 
um, donator and uh, a donor, excuse me. And here's a perfect example as to why I do what I do for people like you, and that makes me feel good. We never know who's going to get our blood, but we know that someone's going to get it. So what ended up happening after that? Yeah, so I'll go to the emotional side of all of it. So okay. as soon as I was diagnosed, it was just me, my parents, um, my wife, Lauren, um, had no idea at that time. By the way, we were only dating, technically only dating for two months. We had met back in St. Patrick's Day, but it's now August, but we started dating around June. And, um, you know, all I could think of was how do I stay strong for my parents? How do I stay strong for Lauren and all, you know, everyone else that's going to receive this news. And instead of me saying, well, what about myself? You know, I didn't think about me at all. And I think for a lot of us, um, you know, for me, especially as a man and a male, I felt like holding in my emotions was the right mm -hmm. route to go so I could be a strong individual so that I didn't have my vulnerable state by, you know, crying or letting go of how I truly felt in the time. And um, that was actually the complete opposite of what I should have done. And I'll say this, this is my one piece of advice to a lot, especially males. Um, Women, you women are a lot, usually a lot better at this than, than us. But um, I know some, you know, women have a difficult time expressing this as well. But just being able to be vulnerable and sharing how you feel to somebody that you can know, like, and trust. And that was either Lauren or my parents at the time. And finally, after a few days at, when I was in the clinic, they did, no joke, probably 30, 40 different tests on me. That is when they found out I had stage four testicular cancer. What they called it was stage three C, but it's the same thing as stage four. Stage four is what my oncologist said. Like the, there isn't really a stage four when it comes to testicular cancer. It's called stage three C, but I just called stage four because that's what it was. So what had happened, they found out that it had originated in my testicle, but I never had any swelling, which was kind of weird because um, most testicular cancer patients, that is their first symptom is swelling or some type of abnormal effects that happen down um, in that region. But for me, it was more or less just the back pain. And that's why I kind of just shrugged it off. And um, so after they figured that out, um, that's when I started having family and friends kind of flooding in. And at the time, Lauren finally arrived about a day later to come and see me. And I just remember having these this flood full of emotion because I didn't know she was still going to be with me. I didn't know if she um, wanted to leave because of, you know, all this tragedy that had happened in my life. But I just remember we locked eyes. We started crying. We started hugging each other. And that was my first moment of vulnerability and letting my emotions go. So it was almost like a weight of just all of this, you know, baggage that was on my shoulders lifted off of me. And I can now focus on instead of holding in my emotions, I could focus on what are the next steps to healing myself. And I knew she was going to be, you know, kind of my angel and, uh, you know, along this whole journey. And so were my parents and, you know, a lot of other people as well. Now, if I remember correctly, when we talked a couple of years ago, you actually were given 24 different diagnoses. Could you give us, give us a few of what those were? Because that's quite a few. Yeah. So I, I don't know about 24, um, okay. you know, but when you talk about diagnosis, do you mean just like what I, I guess what I was saying was there was about 24 different tests that kind of led to that diagnosis. So there was a ton of different testing. So what they ended up doing was they did multiple different tests on me. I mean, they did anything from an ultrasound to blood work to, um, they did, uh, I know, well, when I went for the surgery, they did all, um, 
uh, CT scan. They did, um, I mean, you name it, they did a ton of different tests. And then finally, it was actually the ultrasound that was, um, is where they found where it originated. And that's um, maybe where you're kind of referring to. So it was a multiple test, but the diagnosis um, was just, it was stage three C testicular cancer. I forget the exact like type, because there's different types of testicular cancer of how they form, how they originate. Um, mine was not, I know it was non-seminoma and there might've been some other terms to it, but they then put me on what's called BEP, which is bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin. And that uh, is three really, really potent chemotherapy drugs to help eliminate all of the cancer. And that was really, really challenging for me because I went on it the day they found out I had testicular cancer. They put me directly on it. And, um, you know, I went everything from losing my hair within a couple of weeks. I was extremely fatigued. Basically, anybody you know on chemotherapy, um, I had all the symptoms, nauseous, um, couldn't really get out of bed a lot in the days. And, you know, for me being this healthy 24 year old where the last thing I ever thought was going to be this diagnosis with cancer to now having all of these challenges in my life, not only was it physically taxing on me, but it was mentally draining as well. And yeah. one of my favorite sayings I, I tell people is everything in life happens for you, not to you. And what I mean by that is, yeah, you're gonna have unfair situations. Life is not fair in so many ways. But it's not about the situation. What it's about is how you deal mentally, emotionally with the situation. Are you going to say, why is life happening to me? Saying, why I'm going to be a victim of this. I'm going to have a why me mentality. I'm going to make excuses and ultimately let this situation define me. Or I can take the same situation and say, how is this somehow happening for me? I know it's unfair. Trust me, I get it's unfair. But how can I learn from this situation? What is the lesson? You know, me, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't put faith on anybody. But just for my example, I said, God, what is the lesson you're providing for me that I can use to not just become a better version of myself, but eventually use the lessons to maybe help somebody else along the way, such as what we're doing right now is on this podcast. And I've always taken that to heart. And yes, it didn't just happen overnight. I didn't just have this like, oh, well, you know, how does life happen for me? I had a lot of ups and downs, but the more that I've learned through it, the more I realize that every lesson in life, every hardship in life provides a valuable lesson for you to truly grow. I love that you say that because that's 100% my mindset, as you also know, um, with my own journey. And it is a mindset and it does have some darkness in it um, where you can say, how is this happening for me when I'm in this state of mind that says, I don't want to be this person that's going through this. And not that we want to say we want it to be someone else, but we definitely don't want it to be ourselves. And so within that darkness, um, I'm going to ask you, you'd already mentioned how much weight you'd lost, losing your hair. And I'm not going to say an ego because we all have an ego, but it wasn't even about an ego about losing your hair and your weight. It was about how am I going to get back up? How am I going to get healthy again? And if I remember correctly, there was a time frame where you actually were in a coma. Am I, am I right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tell me more correct. about that, because that's a darkness, too. And especially when you're in a new relationship with someone who I commend anyone who sticks by someone. It's not about what they're going through, but what they can do to help them get through it. I hope that made sense. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we'll we'll jump right to it. So actually, the chemotherapy was for me, um, unfortunately, the easiest part of the journey. So what had happened after was I ended up sitting down with my oncologist and we did blood work to find out where my tumor markers were and how much everything had shrunk. 
So the, and he said, hey, Matt, we have good news and we have bad news. The good news is your tumor is shrunk from 11 centimeters to three centimeters. Your AFP, which is your tumor marker, which was over 100,000, which in a normal range should be at about five, is now under 100. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible news. The, the cancer is going away. The tumor is shrinking. So what could possibly be the bad news? He said, well, the bad news is your tumor is wrapped around what's called your inferior vena cava. Now, your inferior vena cava is basically a central vein that goes from the bottom of your upper body to your heart. He said, we're going to, unfortunately, since it's completely wrapped around it, have to have about a 12 to 15 hour surgery to remove your vena cava, to remove the tumor and remove the rest of the cancer in your body. So for testicular cancer patients, when you have stage three or higher, you usually have what's called an RPLND surgery. And that is a um, rec- I don't want to try and even pronounce because there's a lot of it, it's kind of <laughs> difficult to pronounce, but it's called RPLND and it's a very intense surgery. And unfortunately, since mine was wrapped around my vena cava, it was an even more intense surgery. So we had four different surgeons involved to um, move, move the tumor, remove the vena cava and the rest of the cancer in my body. When they did so, I ended up going into the surgery at about 140 pounds. Before that, I was about 180 pound personal trainer before all this started. And coming out of the surgery, it ended up being a 12 hour surgery. I remember waking up and I had so much swelling all in my body from my legs all the way down to my stomach. Cause what they ended up doing is they mm. cut my stomach completely open from my left hip mm. to my right hip. And, um, you know, what happened was my body, I guess, went to kind of a survival mode and it started to swell up. I was close to 200 pounds after coming out of that surgery. So what had happened was they had a draining tube for my stomach and they said, this should get a lot of the swelling out of your stomach and out of the rest of your body. So a week goes by, I get released from the hospital. Another week goes by and I'm thinking I'm making progress, but all of a sudden the draining just stops just like this out of absolute nowhere. And everything just started to shut down. I ended up getting rushed back to the emergency room, gets rushed to the ER and this is where they found out that my body was going into what's called compartment syndrome. My kidney and liver were completely failing. Mm. I ended up having seven liters of fluid still in my body that they ended up having to drain out, which took about three to four surgeries to do that. My body completely shut down. And this is where I went to a two week non-induced coma. I had a cone drilled inside of my head to relieve potential brain swelling um, that was occurring. And I had a catheter in my chest and I also had a catheter in my neck because they thought I was gonna be on dialysis for the rest of my life. Now, long story short in this whole scenario, I ended up being in the ICU for over 40 days. I ended up being in the hospital for over 53 days. Right out of my two-week coma, about five days later, they go to take out the catheter in my neck because they see that I'm starting to make a little bit of progress. And I end up having what's called an arrhythm heartbeat, meaning it was like a 0.1% chance my heart stops. They have to do eight minutes of CPR on me, bring me back into life. I fall into another one-week coma. And when I finally wake from there, I remember I felt almost like paralyzed. I It took me about two and a half weeks from laying in my ICU bed to taking my very first steps again. And it was three to four nurses every day helping me do this. So I had to completely relearn to walk again in this whole entire process. And finally, when I was about to be released from the ICU and get, or after I was released from the ICU and I was ready to go into pretty much my final stages of recovery, I had about four surgeries in my stomach. And what had happened to not get gruesome here, but my stitches bursted open and I had a lot of my, like my spleen and things were starting to, to come out of the stomach. They had to rush me into a fifth major surgery 
had to do was called an open wound surgery on me where they removed all of my abdominals and um, they put like a big mesh, a football sized mesh on my stomach. And I ended up back in the ICU after I thought I was starting to finally make progress. And for me though, this was really the turning point in my life. I remember waking up in there and I just remember praying to God and asking, um, I have two choices here. You know, I'm an officially, if I wasn't in rock bottom before, I'm officially rock bottom now. And please God, just give me a way to push forward. Give me a way to go up. Because I always tell people, I say, when you're in rock bottom, sometimes this is the turning point in your life that you absolutely needed to go into that new chapter, to go into that new beginning. And that's what it really was for me. I remember getting out of that bed. I walked further than I had ever done um, previous to the ICU room. I finally got out of my second time in the ICU room. And after 53 days um, mm. of Lauren never leaving my side, by the way, and neither mm. did my parents. Like when I say they didn't leave my side, Lauren, she has a job and she would literally wake up at 530 in the morning, sneak in because you're not even allowed to see me until seven. But she would somehow manage to get in. She'd see me every morning. <laughs> she would go to work and then she would come back and she would just sit there in her chair right next to me and I couldn't talk for probably 85% of it. So she would just sit there and be with me and my dad and my mom, they just never left the hospital. So they were absolutely incredible. But here's really what where it was really powerful. So after 53 days, I was released on March 17th of 2017, exactly one year from when me and Lauren had met. And um, I know that was like a symbol of God saying like, this is like the person that you're meant to be with. And I think for a lot of times we, maybe take certain people in our life for granted. And if you're listening right now and you know that person that you know, no matter what you go through, no matter how much hardship is in your life, they will be there for you. And if you can recognize that person, maybe send them a message today and just say how much you appreciate them in your life and how grateful you are for them. And um, that's that's really Lauren and my parents for me. So um, I was released from the hospital. I had wasn't able to eat or drink for almost basically 53 straight days. So I dwindled down to 110 pounds. I was close to 200 pounds. And in a matter of 53 days, I dwindled down to almost, uh, well, I dwindled down almost 100 pounds. So it was 110 pounds coming out of the hospital. And it was one of the most challenging moments of my life in the rebuilding process. But, you know, if you have any questions, that was kind of my whole journey with, with that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I agree with everything you just said, including the appreciation that we do take for granted with people. But I also want to add to that is we also take for granted that our bodies are always going to do what we want them to do, right? And here, you went through all of this roller coaster of events and things, and your body still said, we're going to keep, keep at it, keep at it. So the miracle of the body and the mind that you have that we can always have control over our thoughts and how we want to heal and to get through whatever our struggles are, even though it feels so difficult. You had the physical challenge and you had the emotional challenge. So good for you and for everyone that stuck by you. I, I think that's just absolutely beautiful. So with the recovery process, and you said one year, how long did it take for you to start feeling like you were getting back to the normal that you thought you were, which now is a new normal, but yeah. a functioning normal? Yeah, I would say what, um, what got me to the point where I figured out that I wanted to do something bigger with my life was probably not until about two years after cancer. Um, because I say in order to be selfless for others, you must be selfish for yourself first. If you cannot take care of yourself, if you cannot take care of the emotional, the mental, the physical, the spiritual side of yourself, 
is going to be very hard to then take all those lessons and be able to help other people. So for me, it took me no doubt probably about two years to really recover myself in all aspects of my life. Now, at first, in my opinion, it first started with the mindset, working through my limiting beliefs, you know, working through the, oh, um, I'm not worthy enough to fully heal. Uh, you know, I feel like, um, you know, I my like uh, my whole life I was this fit individual and now I'm this 110 pound skeleton and my ego shattered all of these things that I had to work through but what helped me was starting by saying what is one thing today that is going to help progress me forward I think a lot of times in life we want to get to destination so quickly yet we forget that the journey is what really matters in life. If you can't, if you can't learn and grow through the journey, when you get to the destination or when you get to the place that you've always wanted to be, you'll never truly appreciate it unless you put in the actual work that's going to take to get there. And for me, I knew it was going to take a lot of hard work. So for me, it was the physical side, but I had to start with the limiting beliefs and say, I'm worthy enough to heal myself. I'm worthy enough to take these actionable steps to get myself to where I need to be. And what I started to do was I actually, here's how I started to learn to really walk again. I had a lawn chair at one end of my driveway and I had another lawn chair at the other end. What I would do is I would take all of my effort, get myself up off that chair, have my cane, walk over to the chair, sit down for about a minute, contemplate life saying, okay, how do I get back up and get to this next chair? But I'd just do it again. And the next day I'd move that chair a little bit further. And then I moved that chair a little bit further. And guess what? That chair wasn't in the driveway anymore. The chair started going onto the sidewalk. And then eventually it kept going further and further. And one day I said, you know what? Don't even bring a chair with me. Don't even do it. I need to do this on my own. I need to have the courage. And eventually I was able to walk further and further. And now, I mean, today, five, five and a half, five years later, I mean, I'm able to go out and I could easily go out and walk five, six, seven miles if I want to. But it took small incremental um, progress every single day to get me to where I need to be. So it was mentally working through the limiting beliefs, then physically taking action. Because if you don't take action, you're never going to actually get to where you need to be. Remember, you can do all the meditation, you can do all the inner work, but if you don't take action, then you're never going to get to where you need to be. And a lot of the times I think we try to become perfectionists or we try to do too much before we even take action. All your answers are going to be through going through the scary actionable steps in life. I call it imperfect action, which means taking action while failing along the way. You're gonna fail, it's okay. Don't worry about failing. Don't worry about other people judging you or what they think of you. And that's actually, if they start judging you and thinking something and you know you have good intentions in your heart, that means you're actually doing something worthy of your life. So for me, it took about two years to really work through that. And then I was finally able to say, okay, time to do something bigger with my life perseverance and definitely getting trapped in your own thoughts. Um, before I ask you my final question and find out where you can be found, because I also know you're a speaker, you talked about how you, um, well, we as women are encouraged, strongly encouraged, to do our exams every year for breast cancer. With having been detected at such a young age of 24, would you say that there's that same um, screening that should apply to men as well? 100%. It should be at minimum once a year. I personally think even because uh, everybody gets a physical, or you should be getting a physical 100%. If you're in your 20s, especially, testicular cancer is actually most prevalent from 18 to, I believe, 36 years old. 
So you, mm -hmm. every single year, at least once a year, in my opinion, two times a year. Um, I mean, with me, go, obviously being a cancer survivor, I get checked at least two, maybe even three times a year. But I, I really do recommend at least once a year, you go get checked out. My, um, ideally getting checked out twice just to, just to be safe. You know, there's nothing to worry about, but I think that this is the one thing I wish I would have done. I'll say it right now is, um, if I wasn't so naive at 24 years old and what I got checked out when I originally had my symptoms, it would have been more like stage one instead of stage four. Now I think God had plans for me and I think that there's reasons behind all of this, but I truly want to tell everyone here, don't be afraid and don't feel like it's uh, something that's like, you know, don't be um, ashamed of going to get yourself checked out. If there's something abnormal or even if there isn't, you just want to go get yourself checked out go do it. Give yourself, a, you know, give yourself that reassurance. And I, I say at least once a year. Wonderful. Now, before I ask my final question, I know you're also a motivational speaker and a coach. Um, what are you coaching? Yeah, absolutely. So since I've been in the health field for over 10 years now, um, I found that after cancer, um, you know, rebuilding myself was really challenging mentally and physically. And like I said, it took me about two years, but I realized how much um, of a struggle it was. And what I truly realized as I built um, two years ago, I started a Facebook group for cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers. We've now grown to over 6,000 members. Um, it's a group I wish I never had to build, but it's a group that has been so impactful and so powerful in so, so many ways. And, um, you know, what I've realized is cancer does not stop once you are a cancer survivor there is mm -hmm. so much that we have to recover from as cancer survivors and the physical and mental aspect of it is something that i doctors have their place but there's also a place where they can't necessarily relate to the after part of cancer because there's not necessarily medication or anything that you have to take. It's more rebuilding your life. And that is mm -hmm. my objective is I want to say, hey, I can relate to you as a cancer survivor and know what it takes to recover your body, to recover your mind so you can be the best version of yourself and get back to who you know you um, deserve to be and even become a better version of yourself and maybe do something even greater than what you thought or even imagined you could do with your life. So that's what I do as a coach. And that's what I try to share as a speaker too. And it's not just the cancer survivors. I sh I've shared to different companies. I've shared to um, entrepreneurs. I've shared to testicular cancer patients. I've shared across everywhere. And really the message is, is your current situation is not your final destination. Your current situation should be a stepping stone towards something to help you build yourself into a better version of yourself. You said it so many times over and over, and I've heard it on my on uh, these interviews. Is the best version of who we are, and sometimes it gets us taken down to find out what that best version is. Would you agree? I think it might be the only way sometimes. So yes, one hundred percent. Yes. Now we've actually provided um, all along this interview how to reach you, but is there? You mentioned a couple of other platforms that you can be found. Can you share that with us right now before I ask my final question? Absolutely. So if you would like to um, hire me as a speaker, you can go to mattodiespeaks.com. If you're looking for coaching, you can go onto my Facebook um, page, which is just Matt Odie, or my Instagram, which is Matt, M-A-T-T-Y underscore O-D-E. Just send me a direct message. And if you have gone through cancer and if you are either a patient, a caregiver, or a survivor and want to join my cancer Facebook group, it's called Taking Back Your Life from Cancer. 
and it's my Facebook group. Um, you just go onto Facebook and type in taking back your life from cancer. I'll be happy to have you in it. And um, it's just a free group where we are all a family and all a community helping one another to, you know, fight this uh, terrible disease in so many different ways. Thank you, Matt, for all that information. And I want to thank you for being my guest. But my final question, you're not off the hook yet. Nah. I always find that this question, if it was the only question I could get to know someone in a very short amount of time, would tell me a bit more about who they are. So my question is this, you ready? Yep. What message would you like to leave everyone based on your journey? Yeah, I, I have a very, um, I love this acronym. It's one of my favorite acronyms and I've learned it from a guy named Jim Quick and it's called HOPE. Help one person every day. And I think we underestimate the power of helping one person because by me, hopefully helping one person stay on this podcast can then take the knowledge that I was able to provide them and they can then go and use that to help other people. So by the time that I maybe help five or 10 people or Christine, that you've helped five or 10 people, you technically potentially helped a hundred or 200 people. So don't underestimate the power of helping one person every day. That is my goal. That is literally my motto is hope, help one person every day. If I can just help one person every single day, then I feel like I am um, fulfilling my purpose in life. Well, you've chosen a good word because what are we on? Stories of hope. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Thank you for being my guest again today and sharing your journey. And I hope that whoever saw this message, it was at the right time. And if they know someone that needs his information as well. Thank you. Yes. For the rest of you, I want to say thank you for joining me on yet another amazing story. And I also want to say thank you to my studio sponsor, The Motivated Mind Group, your local creative agency. If you have a story you want to share, know someone who has a story, or you want me to spotlight a nonprofit organization in your community making a difference, please email me to the address of stories at christinehotchkiss.com. Until next time, everyone, I wish you well and you take care.